It's Monday morning. It is October 18th. And you're tuned in to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for the show. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. It's great to be back in studio. This episode is presented by our good friends at Bitcoin Well. Recently recognized as one of Canada's top growing companies in the Globe and Mail's third annual business ranking. The 172nd fastest growing company in Canada. 172 out of 448. Pretty good. They got there because of their three-year revenue growth of 254%. Kicking ass and taking names. We love it. You can find Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. It's great to be back. The show took some time away to charge our batteries, work on a couple of things. I ha- had an opportunity to to speak uh, to an attentive audience organized by uh, Lethbridge College, as a matter of fact, mid last week about disrupting the media industry, which I guess is what we're doing every day here on Real Talk, which was pretty fantastic. An attentive audience, and I'm grateful for everybody that showed up and participated in that dialogue. Of course, it's election day today in our home province of Alberta, which means that uh, at the very least, Alberta's five most populated cities, Alberta's five biggest cities will all see new mayors uh, by this evening or into tomorrow. And so that makes for interesting storylines, of course, in Calgary, Edmonton, in Lethbridge, in Red Deer and in the regional municipality of Wood Buffalo and Fort McMurray. Plus, of course, you could see change in other Alberta communities, but there's a lot to keep an eye on. And then, of course, these referendum questions, too. And so in our province, depending on where you're, you're listening to us or tuning in from or even watching us live on YouTube from from across Canada, you may not be up to speed on, on exactly what's going on. But there's more than just city councillors, mayors and school trustees that will be chosen by the people today. Calgarians are going to be casting votes on fluoride in the water and Albertans are going to be uh, essentially answering Premier Jason Kenney's question. Do you think. That Alberta deserves, I mean, this is actually more of a direct question than it is phrased. I mean, this is actually a little bit less ambiguous, but but essentially the question is, do you think Alberta deserves a better deal? Uh, really what the question is, is around, do you support removing a certain section, 36-2, out of the Constitution that relates to equalization? And so Albertans today uh, will go to the polls, answer that question, and, and of course also on daylight saving time. Albertans are going to decide Sarah Hoyle's rolling her eyes so hard, yet risk of a migraine on this Monday morning. Uh, I've seen different opinions on the daylight saving time question. I'm, I think I'm more inclined to roll my eyes at the equalization question than the daylight saving question. How about you? I mean, are both of them? Do you have do you have your mind made up? Do you feel like you understand each question clearly enough to have a definitive position on this? Oh, when you put it like that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm clear on how I'm going to be casting my yeah my you votes. are you, you feel like you understand the questions clearly understand the issues clearly ready to go yes but I feel like the questions were written in a way to be confusing yeah. and to muddy the waters referendum so, questions often are I just man they're but they're also so stupid <laughs> Sam, have you made up your mind on where you're going to get? That's the most scathing assessment to this point. 
not necessarily inaccurate. Have you made up your mind? You know, I'm not asking you which way you're going to vote or where you're going to go, but do you feel like you understand the questions clearly uh, on daylight no, saving time? No on referendum, or sorry, no on equalization, no on daylight savings time. Back to you, Ryan. Okay, Sam, there you go. Uh, I think that a lot of people are feeling, you know, some nervousness around where the daylight saving question is going to go because it will have real impacts on people. It'll have real impacts on people's lives. And, and, and you may kind of go, oh, come on. What is it? it? Change the clocks twice a year or not. That's basically it. But the more people that I've talked to and the more that I've tried to understand, you remember, we seek to understand on Real Talk. I'm just we just steal that from Stephen Covey. We can't put it on a billboard because it's stolen. But I think it's good advice. Uh, I've realized that some people do truly feel or are predicting that that a change to daylight saving time, in other words, moving to permanently remain on daylight saving time could have an impact on their lives, on their on their careers, on the people around them, on their health. And a lot of people are talking about how, you know, this could mean in the winter, uh, especially in central to northern uh, jurisdictions. If you, you know, the, the, the further north that you live, it could mean that the sun's coming up at 1030 in the morning in the winter. So for some people, that's a pretty big deal. Um, for different reasons. So we'll see where that goes. Um, I believe, and I'm not the first to say this, that this referendum question on equalization will serve to a certain degree to pull the public. Orton's today, are you still with me or not? Yeah. And I think if you would have asked anybody, regardless of how you feel about the question or regardless of how you would vote on the question, most people, including me, would have forecasted uh, up to maybe even several weeks ago, or at least up until a couple of months ago, that this question will see 85% yes votes, 85 to 90% yes. Albertans will overwhelmingly say we deserve a better deal. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Wow. Okay. I, what, do you have any... I mean, I don't know if I want to predict it, because if I predict eh? it, I could end eh? up looking like just absolutely out to lunch, but I'm going to say high 60s. Okay. I think let's give it like a two thirds. I think it'll see like a 65 to 68 percent. Yes. Vote. Um, so, you know, let's say that I, I think that the movement may have lost approximately 20 points of support. Uh, but again, it's non-binding. Yeah, it's and like it's okay, insignificant good. and it really means nothing. <laughs> uh, but but as the premier, you know, believes it's, it's an opportunity for Alberta to send a message or to continue to send a message to Ottawa with regards to to uh, the season of Albertans discontent. So I'm curious to know where you land on that. Uh, coming up, we have a little bit of a different approach to our question of the week this week presented by our research and strategy partners at Y Station. Typically on a Monday we push out our question of the week and we ask you to chime in and let us know where you're at with it. We will this Monday today be getting into the results of our most recent question of the week, but we're waiting to launch our next one until tomorrow morning. We're going to wait until we know the results of the municipal elections. We're going to wait until we understand more about how Albertans, how people in our home province voted, and then we're going to go to you with our question of the week. How do you feel about it? Are you surprised? Are you excited? Are you disappointed? You know, did this play out the way that you thought it would, et cetera, et cetera. So our question of the week is going to be coming up tomorrow, uh, presented by the team at Y Station. In addition to it being election day, 
and I know that I feel like people in, in Edmonton and Calgary in particular have their hearts in their throats a little bit today. Um, you know, no incumbents, right? Mayors Ned Nenshi and Don Iveson are both moving on from at least this stage of their political careers. And that means that, that the race is wide open. And as, as I said earlier, not just in Calgary and Edmonton, uh, in Red Deer, in Lethbridge, in Fort McMurray. And these are city centers with, you know, flirting with 100,000 people in each of these city centers. So, so these, are, these are not small uh, scenarios. These are significant elections. But in particular, in Calgary and Edmonton, you have some of these mayoral candidates talking about making some pretty big promises and talking about some pretty big things. I mean, there are candidates out there that, that would cancel uh, big transit projects that are, that are already underway. Uh, there are some candidates that I know that feel very strongly. They're making big promises about things like freezing property taxes, um, which, of course, I think most people realize uh, would be pretty tough to do right now with regards to where the, the economics are post-pandemic. I'm just going to encourage you. The show's not taken a specific position with regards to endorsing mayoral candidates today. I'm still, uh, you know, wondering uh, how this is all going to play out. And I'm curious to see where the numbers go. What I what I will encourage you to do today is to take. And I know this is where it comes. It, it happens on every show. Every single person with the platform on Election Day is going to do this sort of like just like a mini. And it's not like a lecture. It's just like a it's just a mini. Um, it's like a charge. You know, when you, if you go to a wedding and at the reception, somebody delivers like a charge. It's like the challenge. It's like make us proud. That's what this is today is to take your vote seriously. Uh, to remember that the unfortunate thing about democracy is that everybody gets a vote. Um just kidding. But seriously, a lot of these candidates have rallied hard and they're going to have these armies showing up to vote today. And not as, actual armies, not actual. Well, and as the uh, and as it's as the saying goes, if you don't vote, you've surrendered or lost your right to complain uh, until the next election. And so if you want to keep joining us here on Real Talk and taking swipes at the elected representatives, the least you can do today is take five minutes and go vote. In all seriousness, we encourage you to do so. And we expect, I mean, depending on who wins, uh, at least in Calgary and Edmonton, we expect that we'll probably uh, have a conversation or two. We expect with some of the people that are in the midst uh, and right in the mix of those mayoral elections coming up in just a second. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Of course, we will we, flirt a little bit uh, with with election talk today. We'll 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 dip our toes in the pool in the pool. We, we may even move around in the shallow end. But to this point, we've covered it. We've spoken to nine of the top 10 polling mayoral candidates in Calgary and Edmonton. If you feel like you require more information in those two major urban centers before you vote, you can find those 10 minute vignettes uh, on our YouTube channel. You can find them anywhere you download podcasts. That was from Friday, October 8th. Correct. I think I got the date right. It was from Friday, October 8th. That's when we spoke to nine of the top 10 polling mayoral candidates. You can check those out. But now we wait and see. Tomorrow, we'll have more to talk about. Tomorrow, we'll have more to sink our teeth into. Uh, Ken is letting me know that while there may not be armies showing up to votes, he's chimed in on our live chat on YouTube. Uh, some will be wearing camo sweats, and he's not wrong. It is into sweats 
season. And so we could have that. Maybe even a couple of, of, of orange hats. What do you what are you wrinkling your nose at here? What do you every every season is sweat season. Well, but fall <laughs> is more sweat season. We're getting back into the sweaters and the hoodies. I think it's bunny long hugs, john season. The bunny hugs for our friends in Saskatchewan. <laughs> have you put on long johns yet this year? Like I have. This, you have. I did some owl tagging uh out at the Beaver Hills uh bird observatory over the week. Pardon me, excuse me, what? Owl tagging. You were tagging owls. I was playing tag with some owls. Like what? You you uh, sedate them and then put the little bands on their legs. I really I was just tagging along with naturalists and they were. Wow. Yeah, we we were out at night and there were like big nets that if you did, I just saw myself uh, leaning into one and getting trapped, but I didn't. And uh, they yeah, catch them in nets. Yeah. And, and the owls don't. They can't. They can't avoid the nets. No, I mean, of course, my bleeding heart. I kept asking all the questions like, yeah, are they okay? Yeah. Physiologically, are they okay? And they're like, oh, yeah, they're fine. Wow. And what kinds of owls? Uh, Sawit owls. These little guys, they're like about maybe half a foot when they're full grown. Owls are just the coolest. They really are. It was an alien abduction for them, for sure. Wow, yeah. <laughs> like all these headlamps, and they're like, what is yeah. going on? Anyways. Wow. So you had the long johns on for that. Yes, that is what we were talking about. Long johns yeah. on for that. You and I do a good job of bringing each other the focus back, bringing the focus back. Sam, have you yet put on the, the, the like, I mean, have you, have you transitioned to fall wardrobe yet? I, like a little bit. And and I say that because like my my default is usually when I when I leave you work I usually shed the sport coat shed mm-hmm. the the, the uh, trousers and just uh, you know, roll up my just sleeves drops his drawers. just drops it yeah and just uh, you know just roll up my sleeves and put a pair of shorts on I, I can't do that anymore so Attaboy. now it's jeans I haven't put a pair of long johns on yet but they're coming that feels like that I yeah. like that it's like it's it's kind of like a, a a tip of the cap a bit of a nod to the old school you get home from work and just drop the pants the pants just the Trousers. The trousers. Those are the words he used. Or slacks. Yeah. The slacks. I can't bring myself to say slacks. Really? I go for trousers. I mean, they're the same thing. But yeah. yeah. There you go. I feel like trousers is is a little bit more like uh, Little House on the Prairie. While slacks is a little more. uh, Mad Men. Is it Mad Men? Yeah. Oh, well. Okay, yeah. then I'm changing teams. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now on Team Slack. Okay, there you go. We're going to get serious in just a second. We're not talking about a lot of election stuff today for obvious reasons. There's not a whole lot left to talk about now. Uh, we got to let the cards fall where they may. So get out and vote. Coming up in just a couple of seconds. Uh, very much looking forward to this conversation uh, with Vandina Janeja. We're going to talk about uh, essentially workplace equity and how COVID has affected women. And in a particularly... Um, uh, do, do, do I say I was gonna say particularly offensive, but I don't know. It's so, so offensive, but but it, it, it pissed a lot of people off uh, when uh, a cabinet minister in Alberta by the name of Doug Schweitzer went on the record uh, talking about job creation in Alberta and basically said a lot of women came back into the workplace because a lot of women took time off during covid. And uh, I was off the grid for a significant part of last week on purpose away from signals, away from social media. And when I came back and started catching up and I saw that quote, I went, oh, here we go. And so we're going to get into that in just a second. We're going to talk about land acknowledgements today. What does this mean when New Brunswick walking away from land acknowledgements saying we can't do these really anymore? They don't really work anymore. We'll find out why, what it means, why these are important to a lot of people. And then, of course, a celebrity conversation today when we announced it from our official Real Talk RJ Twitter account yesterday, and then again on Instagram, people went nuts 
for Brooklyn Heights. Sarah Hoyle's booking the so-called Queen of the North. Oh, whoa, whoa. Not so-called. Well, that's what you have to say. You have to say the so-called Queen of the North. I have experience in talk radio (laughs) having interviewed a gal in Edmonton uh, who received the Queen's, uh, the Diamond Jubilee Medal, and then started referring to herself as the Princess of Canada. When I introduced her as the Princess of Canada, facetiously to the radio audience, we received a barrage of messages. A litany. From people complaining about the monarchy and how it's time to, and I had to inform almost all of them that in fact, Amber was not the Princess of Canada. So I stand by my statement, Brooklyn Heights, the so-called Queen of the North. Okay, she's the Queen Although of the North in my heart. It may become, it may become more of an official title in days to come. Before we go any further, I want to remind you that our friends at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge are so glad to be moving on from the reality that has been limited selection. For the past number of months, every car dealer in Canada has been dealing with with, with a bottleneck of supply. They've not been able to get the vehicles in, so they've been working hard at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge to make sure that their pre-owned inventory was ready to give you what you were looking for, but the trailers are arriving as we speak they've got hundreds literally of dodge ram 1500 pickups they've got more than 100 grand cherokees on the way jeep wranglers dodge durangos those gladiators you know those jeep gladiators everybody loves october is their biggest sale of the year so check them out online via our sponsors tab on our website or in person at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Also wanted to remind you that our friends at Eden Landscaping, they're wrapping up all of their projects right now, the summer projects where they've been basically bringing people's outdoor spaces to life, but they're also, at this time of year, starting to work with clients, return clients, and new ones on the plans. Talking about the, you know, the, the sort of ideas that people want to manifest into their front or backyards, into their properties. How do you want to transform it? What do you want your next spring and summer to look like? It's never too early to visit landscapeedmonton.ca. Get in touch with Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping. All right, so let's get to this. As mentioned, uh, a cabinet minister, the minister of jobs in Alberta. Technically, he's the minister of jobs, economy, and innovation. The Honorable Doug Schweitzer on the record saying a lot of women came back into the workforce as Alberta added 20,000 jobs last month. They came back into the workforce as the school year began because a lot of women took time off during COVID. Minister went on to say it disproportionately impacted women. That is true. And he says, we saw a lot of women return to the workforce looking for jobs in September. Says the minister, I'm optimistic with the labor shortages we're seeing in everything from drilling rigs to construction to the tech sector to the restaurant industry that a lot of people are going to find employment over the next few months. Vandana Janeja is the executive director for Catalyst in Canada. She's a lawyer by training has worked uh, for a number of years to help companies advance women into leadership and create more inclusive workplaces. You may know Catalyst is a global nonprofit dedicated to helping build workplaces that work for women. Thanks so much for making time for us this morning and welcome to Real Talk. Thanks so much for having me. What's your first reaction when you hear a, a cabinet minister say a lot of women took time off during COVID? 
Well, um, you know, it's the statement is almost laughable. And if not laughable, I'm, I'm sure that it's angered um, a lot of women um, and individuals in general. I, I wouldn't really liken the time over the last uh, year and a half for women to be taking time off. Um, I would think of it more as incredible pressure that's been put on women, but also um, women have uh, been um, almost forced out of the workplace over the last year and a half, just given the pressures that have been on them. Um, almost half a million Canadian women lost their jobs during the pandemic, um, according to um, a report from RBC earlier this year. And 200,000 of those women have fallen into long-term unemployment. So that means it's going to be harder for women to get back into the workplace as well. Um, so it's really, I, I would say, it's very much a different scenario than taking time off. How do you when you start talking about women reentering the workforce, can, can we get into some of the barriers or some of the hurdles that might not be immediately obvious or apparent? I mean, what are some of the some, what are some of the really significant hurdles that are standing in in potentially thousands of people's way? Sure. I mean, you know, a lot of these um, hurdles or barriers that we might talk about have existed even prior to the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic has laid bare a, a lot of challenges with, with respect to certain industries, right? So if we think of, um, you know, the uh, retail sector or hospitality industry, um, women have absorbed uh around 65% of the job losses um, in accommodations and food services. Um, men have seen some of those earlier job losses as well, but um, in industries like manufacturing and construction, for example, but they've actually returned to work quickly. So there's a bit of a difference there. Um, and also, I just, I think it's really important to point out here, just in terms of the broader context that um, there were more women in the labor force in 1991 than there were at the height of the pandemic. So if you think about it, you know, 30 years ago, and I don't know for, for yourself, I'm probably dating myself, but in 1991, I was in undergrad. And if I think that there are, there were just at the height of the pandemic, the same number of women, um, you know, or more women at that time in the workforce than now, it really makes me pause and question, you know, what kind of progress have we made now and what kind of impact has this pandemic had for women. So it's pretty significant. Um, and in terms of the barriers, like I said, you know, a lot of those barriers have existed even in, in advance of the pandemic. Um, you know, one of them is, as we would um, refer to the motherhood penalty um, or thinking about childcare. This has really been a huge challenge. Um, during COVID-19, childcare and housework have mostly fallen to mothers. And uh, according to our research at Catalyst, women are actually twice as likely to be primarily responsible for their children's homeschooling. Um, um, when we're thinking about, you know, virtual homeschooling. And so research on this motherhood gap shows that women lose out on 3% of their lifetime earnings for every year that they spend away from work. And a similar penalty would apply to those taking time off to parent or to care for loved ones, whether it be children or uh, elderly care during COVID-19. So that's a significant bar barrier. Um, also, um, you know, one of the um, areas that I think is really significant is 
which women are really hardest hit during this time. And I, I don't think this is particularly surprising. It's young women, it's mothers, it's newcomers to Canada and women from underrepresented groups. So if you want to think of uh, the term BIPOC, you know, referring to black professionals, indigenous peoples, people of color, um, this isn't really surprising. And we can talk a bit more about that if, if, if you've got interest in that. Um, and then also when we think about the levels of women, um, it's senior level women's as well, women as well that are being impacted here because they're really being pushed to the brink. Um, and those that includes those individuals without children as well. So companies are really at risk of losing women in leadership as well. Um, one of the um, area, areas that um, comes into play here is um who is going to have these sort of courageous conversations and the more um, emotional type of conversations that may have been necessary over this year and a half. Um, so one of that those barriers you can think of is sort of who's responsible for some of the emotional labor um, as it's referred to in the workplace when you need to have some of those hard conversations around what people have going on outside their workplace, how they're dealing with the pandemic and, and how that's playing into their work environment. So that in particular impacts women in senior level positions. Can we get into that? I don't, I feel like we've talked a lot, obviously, about COVID-19. I mean, it feels like all we've talked about for a year and a half, quite frankly. And we've done our best, I think, to explore some of the most significant, some of the most important angles, including this one, what we're talking mm-hmm. about today. But I've not heard a lot of people, and we as a, as a show have not explored a lot what you've been talking about in the context of emotional labor. And that's an important one. Can, can we dig into that a little bit deeper? Sure. You know, when we're talking about the workplace, one of the things that's really critical right now, and, and I would say before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and it will absolutely be after the pandemic as well, is a culture of inclusion and creating an environment uh, where um, we're creating safe spaces for individuals to be able to um, bring their whole selves to work, to be able to uh, express who they are and um, to feel valued and trusted in their environment. And so when we think about this idea of emotional labor, um, what the research has shown is that in particular senior women uh, or women in senior positions, more of that emotional burden has fallen to them. So more of these courageous conversations around um, what people may be experiencing in and out of in and out of the workplace during the pandemic. You know, um, if you think about um, an individual who's uh, working at home and they've got, let's say, a couple of uh, uh, um, teenage or uh, university age uh, children that are at home, they're, you know, all clamoring for the Wi-Fi. They've got a partner or a spouse that's at home also, you know, on in meetings, on Zoom calls. And, you know, there, there's um, sort of a, a lot of activity going on in the house. You've got the dog barking, you've got, you know, another pet um, clamoring um, in front of you. And so there's a lot happening for people. And um, this comes together in how people are showing up in the workplace and people are burnt out. Our research at Catalyst actually shows that, um, you know, more than 92% of individuals are demonstrating that they are experiencing burnout, whether it's from uh, work-related burnout, uh, pandemic work-related burnout, or personal-related burnout. But that's a significant uh, number of individuals that are experiencing what we refer to as burnout. 
Interesting comment here. I mean, we, we've got a lot of uh, engaged audience members that are that are chiming in on this and sharing personal perspectives, which are obviously so valuable in conversations like this. Um, you know, Tanya uh, says having to tell my 10 year old daughter that she can't go to a classmate's poorly thought out Halloween party. You know, that's an example of emotional labor. And Tanya says that kind of thing over and over and over for more than 20 months. Jillian says it's actually pretty damn embarrassing how much of the emotional labor women do. Uh, that's something that men really need to get better at. 45% of our audience is men. What do we need to get better at specifically and how do we do it? Well, that's a wonderful question. And I think, you know, I, I look at it as what are the opportunities, right? What are the opportunities? We can't put all of this on women. We can't put all of this on men or any uh, of, of the particular genders. But what we can do is we can, you know, the work that we do at Catalyst is really focused on organizations and what companies can do to create these environments that are more inclusive. And so I look at it as what is the opportunity for organizations to make change um, and to normalize that sort of equitable um, balance um, amongst the genders. And so um, one of those areas is engaging men in the dialogue. Um, we do a lot of work around this at Catalyst in terms of engaging men in inclusion. And um, men are often uh, experiencing what we call being in the man box, where there's societal expectations that are put on them that, you know, what does it mean to be a, a man? You know, you hear those phrases as early as um, from young ages, boys don't cry, or, you know, to be a man, you need to show up as being strong, being in control, you know, being a pro problem solver, being, um, you know, aggressive, like all of these sort of adjectives, as you might think of them as being what very masculine and what it means to be a man. And so there's the opportunity for men to engage in dialogue around inclusion, first of all, to um, have a better understanding of their own uh, biases, um, also to have an understanding of their own privilege. You know, each and every one of us comes into the workplace with a sense of, with an experience of privilege. We all have these intersection, intersecting identities where, um, you know, whether you're showing up as um, a, a man or a woman, let, whether you're showing up as a, um, a husband, a father, um, a wife, a mother, um, a person of color. Um, these are just some of our in intersecting identities but it's really important to be able to um, have conversations across differences. And so um, each of those identities uh, may hold with it a, a privilege um, that we bring into the workplace. So men can actually recognize the privilege that they hold uh, coming into the workplace and use that privilege um, to work towards creating change and creating culture change. And we talk about at Catalyst, this idea of gender partnership, and that's all the genders coming together um, for conversation and dialogue with respect to inclusion, with mutual accountability. So this is an accountability rests on everyone. It's not just on the men, it's not just on the women to solve this. This is for everyone. But the intent of it is to create culture change. So we can talk about uh, corporate culture change and, and we can talk about bigger picture. I mean, culture change period how much how much of this revolves around resources uh for women either in or desiring to participate in the workforce things like uh subsidized or supported child care how, how big of a part of the conversation is child care 
Well, I mean, I think childcare is um, really important and maybe that leads you into a bit of a conversation around government and, um, you know, the work that we do at Catalyst is very much focused on driving change within organizations um, versus lobbying government. So I just want to be uh, sort of upfront about that. But that being said, you know, I think there's so many things that policymakers could consider um, doing in order to help women. And those could be things like, you know, the resources that you're mentioning like paid sick days, um, higher wages, better social and income supports and flexibility in the workplace. And of course, affordable childcare would help um, more lower earning individual mothers to get back to work as well at this time. Okay, let's I I, I appreciate you, you know, shining some light with, uh, you know, with regards to sort of where your specific efforts lie. So let's talk to corporate leaders. And and when I say corporate leaders, I don't just mean CEOs. I'm not just talking about Fortune 500 companies, Uh, you know, employers with with five employees or with 20 or, or, or whatever the case may be. The 1991 statistic you shared with us is quite frankly shocking. Uh, or maybe for some people like yourself, you go, it's actually not a surprise at all if you pay closer attention, which would be a fair comment. But I think what it can serve to do is light a fire under people with regards to awareness. Um, I would have assumed over the last 30 years that there would have been improvements, pandemic or not. But it sure reiterates to us that there's a long way to go. And while there may have been movement on some files, it it sure doesn't sound like there's been significant movement on this one. So specifically, what are a couple of things that need to happen regardless of the size of the company or the industry? Sure. So, you know, I do want to say that there has been um, progress for women over the last several decades. So I don't want us to lose sight of that. But I think it's important to share that, you know, the pandemic in particular has really set women back um, by decades. And so that's uh, it's quite devastating, really. And there's a lot of work that now needs to be done. Um, a few of the things that um Uh, you know, organizations can do. First of all, um, adopt flex time or um, access to remote work options. Now, this, of course, I recognize is not going to be the case in every single industry and sector. You know, manufacturing, that's going to be harder, for example. Um, You know, where where we have field operations, that's going to be a tougher um, thing to do. But where there are opportunities, we know that access to remote work options actually helps to mitigate or address uh, burnout, which is really prevalent right now in the workplace. Um, Build more inclusive cultures. So when we talk about an inclusive culture, that's a place where, you know, I touched on it earlier, but it's a place where people feel valued. They feel trusted by their leaders. Um, They feel that they can be authentic and show up as who they are um, with with all, all of the aspects of themselves that are different or unique from others. And they experience what we call psychological safety, where they feel that they can take risks and they also feel that they may be able to make a misstep or a mistake and not be unduly punished or penalized for it. So leaders and organizations at large need to be focused on creating these cultures of inclusion. And in order to do that, we need to actually help our people and help leaders. And by this, I don't mean necessarily the C-suite leader at the top and only them. I mean, absolutely everyone. Each and every one of us can learn to show up as an inclusive leader. And so that's where we are demonstrating behaviors like um, holding ourselves and others accountable, uh, providing ownership to people 
people of their work. And that you can think of that almost as the opposite of micromanaging, you know, letting your people go out there and thrive and do the work that they're capable of doing. Um, also demonstrating allyship. So showing up for others and maybe amplifying the messages of others, particularly those from underrepresented groups. Um, also, there's behaviors that are really focused on sort of we refer to them as those behaviors were leading outward that I just mentioned, but there's also behaviors that are focused on leading inward where we're sort of holding a mirror up to ourselves and asking ourselves, you know, am I showing up as the leader that I want to or that I need to? And those behaviors are um, demonstrating curiosity. So inquiring across our differences, we encounter individuals all day long that are different from ourselves, from unique backgrounds um, and, and have different intersecting identities. So let's Let's pause and ask questions. You know, how does someone experience the workplace who is different from ourselves? Um, we also want to be demonstrating humility and to be able to say, you know, uh, here's a place where I had a misstep or a mistake, or here's where I could do better and, and own that and be able to, to talk about that and communicate it with others. And then lastly, being able to uh, demonstrate courage. And I think there's been a lot of pressure on leaders over this last uh, 18 months to really be demonstrating that courage when it comes to speaking up when we see something that's not right. And again, I think that courage and humility, they go together because we're not always going to get it right. And we need to be able to stand up and say, hey, you know what? I got it wrong that time, but I'm going to do better the next time around. But so are, are you uh, are you talking to us from Ontario? Is that where you are right now? Yes, I am. Do you do you have uh, or does Catalyst have data uh, with regards to uh, maybe disproportionate effects on women in the workplace based on uh, provincial childcare structures? I mean, are, did, did childcare resources, for example, in Quebec, uh, were women, uh, you know, p- potentially in, in the workforce more secure with regards to stability there than other provinces? Were you able to break that down? Um, that's something that I could probably come back to you with. Mm. Um, but I see I see where you're um, It'd be interesting coming to from know, where- you know. Of course. Yeah, I'd be curious to know that. I, I, I'd also, you know, I mean, we talk about these um, pe- pe- people are speculating about what the workplace of, of not just the now, what the workplace of the future looks like and what we've learned uh, from COVID. And of course, we see a lot of companies. Uh, I mean, anybody that looks at any downtown skyline, I don't know about Toronto, but certainly in Calgary, it's very evident. And in other cities across the country, there's a lot of lights turned off in a lot of the towers. And you talk to anybody in commercial real estate and they'll let you know that a lot of companies are insisting that their leases be renegotiated. People are taking less square footage. There's more of a hybrid workplace, uh, even an expectation of such. Um, I have to assume that that may be one of your concerns moving forward with regards to, again, women being affected by those trends. Am I correct? I would say yes and no, actually. You know, you're mentioning hybrid work. So first of all, on the uh, skyline piece, definitely, you know, seeing something similar uh, here in Toronto or just outside of Toronto. Um, I also, you know, my first job out of university was in Vancouver working for a forestry company. I know, you know, I I sort of keep in touch with, um, you know, what's happening in the market there. And um, I've definitely heard similar feedback from uh, Vancouver as an example. And when, when we look at hybrid, um, there's there's benefits and there can also be areas for concern or areas for us to consider and make sure that we're being more inclusive around hybrid. So um, first of all, having the option for flex is 
absolutely 100% beneficial for women. You know, if you consider organizations that have flex time, um, especially for employees with dependent children, um, with um, elder care responsibilities, um, that's really critical. And to be able to offer that without career penalties is really important. Now, um, I've heard differing views on on hybrid and um, our our research at Catalyst, as I mentioned, really definitely shows that um, having options for remote work, for example, are that's an opportunity to mitigate burnout. So there are benefits. Um, but I've also seen um, arguments recently. There was something in the Global Mail um, last month that touched on um, hybrid work potentially being the next career killer for women. And I thought it was interesting because it was raising an important point, but it also raises an opportunity for employers. So if you think about, um, you know, having a workplace where some people are showing up in person at this time and some people are showing up um, by working from home or continuing to work from home if they have had the um, opportunity or the privilege to do so over the last year and a half, people are showing up to the workplace then in different ways and different dynamics are being created. So if you've got sort of the group who's coming into the office regularly, who's now sort of finding those opportunities to connect, to engage, to um, build some, you know, collaboration with their peers and um, get some of that social interaction that they may have been missing out on, um, we need to make sure that there's opportunities to continue to connect the whole team and to not let those who are taking advantage of having, um, and I mean taking advantage in a positive way, who are um, taking those opportunities to work at home, we don't want that to have a negative impact on women's careers. So, you know, when you think of um, hot jobs as we refer to them at Catalyst, those are mission critical roles. They have greater PL responsibility. They're highly visible. They're bigger files. Um, and all of those great things that come with good opportunities. We have to be careful that we're not providing those opportunities just to those individuals that we're seeing face to face, right? It's about flex time and what we provide as a work product. It's not about just the face time. Um, and so we have to make sure that when we're thinking about things like career pathing or succession planning or promotion opportunities that we're not just thinking about the people who are in front of us face to face, that we're taking into account our whole team uh, as a whole. And as leaders, there's an op opportunity and a responsibility to be bringing people together. Vandana Janeja is uh, executive director for Catalyst in Canada, workplace equity expert. You can learn more about what they do at Catalyst.org and follow them on Twitter at Catalyst Inc. Thanks so much for your insight today. We, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Real talkers, you can let me know more about your personal stories. This is great. Always appreciate the live chat. If, if this is something you sit with for a little bit and, and feel like hammering out an email to us, maybe provide some context uh, let us know maybe something your company's been doing that you feel has been holding you back or maybe something that's been providing an equitable workplace, maybe a step that you took as an employer or maybe something your employer did for you as an employee, whether it's company policy, whether it's something they said. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. That culture conversation is such an important one. I was talking to a business leader just the other day and, and he said, that there's uh, research that shows I shouldn't even 
uh, I shouldn't even say this on on the show. Uh, I should I should keep it in my back pocket so I can deploy so I can deploy it to Sarah and Sam and the rest of our team here. But he said that there's research that shows that the most powerful, the most impactful thing that someone can say to another person in a moment to bring out the best in them is I believe in you. So what has your employer done to show you or what have you done as an employer, a business leader, maybe a corporate leader, a community leader to show that you believe in someone, that you empower them, you will take steps to empower them and provide an equitable scenario. We'd love to hear from you. Of course, it is election day here. We should mention as well. I mean, former U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell announced just early uh, this morning, passing away at, at uh, 84 years of age uh, due to complications from COVID-19. Uh, he was vaccinated. And uh, of course, uh, many people throughout the day, depending on when you're listening to this, you will have likely already heard comments from past American presidents, international leaders uh, and the like. The first black American Secretary of State and of course, we've been we've been hearing from presidents uh, throughout this morning talking about Cole and Powell. You can let us know your thoughts on that. And it is Election Day in our home province of Alberta. That includes a couple of referendum questions. And, and then depending on where you're at as well, the other questions, including fluoride in the water in Calgary, they're Alberta's Senate elections. People will be running for Senate nominations. I don't know. Why, I don't know why you're laughing, Hoyles. Uh, is, is it maybe because that's not a thing? It's not, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. But that doesn't mean that you there aren't people. It, on. it doesn't mean you can't put it on the ballot. And uh, and I know that there are people that have been running campaigns over the past number of months. They want to be Alberta's next elected senator or senators. And uh, so you can share your thoughts on that. S. McFury says to us, they ask every person you come across today, did you vote? And if not, please allow me to help you locate a polling station. Gina says, I don't know what to do with those Senate votes. I mean, do you leave it blank? Steli Z chiming in says regarding the the referendum question on daylight saving time. I don't want a 10 a.m. sunrise in the winter. So it sounds to me like Steli will be voting no. Hope uh, says that she voted no on the equalization question, says it's it's too bad that most people don't really understand equalization, don't understand. They have no clue that we don't send a big fat check to the feds. If you, if you feel like you have a few questions about equalization, if you'd like, we've made it easy for you. You can go back to our uh, Friday show, October 8th, uh, an Athabasca University professor that kind of laid it all out for us. What did he call it? He called it political saber rattling, I believe. Uh, some random guy says until permanent standard time is on the ballot, I'm not voting for permanent daylight. So that'll be another no vote there. Brenda says this is so confusing. Uh, many people I've spoken with have said that these these referendum questions should be written more clearly. Nicole says, I can't believe the amount of people that are not thinking past their own nose on the time change question. Hmm. Adventure Cycling says no chance. I want the sun coming up at 930 a.m. No matter when it is. Karen says there should have been three options. Stay with changing the time back and forth. Adopt permanent daylight saving time or permanent standard time. Mm. Kathy says, I'm voting no to both questions. If the clock change question had been for standard time, then I may consider it more. Yeah, fair. Sean says, I agree we shouldn't change, but it's funny when 
when when the NDP and the United Conservatives polled the public on this, the majority said move to daylight saving time. I, I find it funny now, says Sean, when faced with a vote, people seem to be changing their minds. Tracy says the question with all of this is what will the premier do? If the end result of the equalization question is a no, if a majority of Albertans say no on equalization, you know, we've been telling Premier for a year or two now that we're unhappy and he's not listening. I find it interesting. Something that's pretty interesting right now is that the government's been hanging on to this uh, this investigation, this final report out of Calgary on on the, the foreign campaign. You remember this, this investigation into foreign campaigns to, to landlock Alberta oil. And, uh, you know, this this has been going on for a while. The government's had it in-house for more than two months. The results have not been released. And I think a lot of people are asking very fair questions around why you would not release the findings of that multi-million dollar report, the Steve Allen inquiry, before Albertans vote on equalization. Is there something going on there? Maybe. Jordan says, I don't want permanent daylight saving time. I also don't want to give this government anything else to do, quite frankly, because I don't feel like they're getting anything right. Kathy says there you know, maybe things that need to be tweaked in the equalization formula, but it shouldn't be scrapped. How about this from Tracy, who changed her mind, says I would have voted yes to permanent daylight saving time before I actually read more about it, read more information about it. That's an interesting comment right there. Really interesting comment right there. When he says, what message are we sending with this equalization question? A big pouty face? Albertans have to get over the National Energy Program and this Trudeau hate already. It was 40 years ago. I saw the uh, Orphan Wells big daddy W. Brett Wilson out of Calgary the other day supporting Pierre Elliott Trudeau's National Energy Program. Now, not in so many words, but he was talking about how, I mean, this is one of the laziest arguments that you'll ever see anybody make in support of Canadian oil. Talking about Eastern Canada, and it's true, importing millions and millions of barrels of foreign oil. We use that word foreign, foreign oil saying that we should be going to Canadian oil reserves. We should be using Canada's natural resources, not importing foreign oil. What Brett Wilson's talking about in theory is like a national energy program. What he's also implying is that the federal government should be telling private businesses or publicly traded, but you get the idea, non-crown corporations like Irving Oil in eastern Canada where they can and cannot get their supply. Kind of like socialism or communism or pick the ism you want to use. Brett Wilson believes that the federal government should be telling these big businesses where they can get their oil. So I'm not sure that he's thought that one through. I, I mean, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. It's so. good for Brett, mm-hmm. right? It's good for Brett. In just a second, we're going to learn a little bit more about what's going on in New Brunswick in particular. Uh, that province saying, uh, listen, 
we can only use ancestral acknowledgments now approved by the provincial government's protocol office. No more land acknowledgments. We're going to find out why and what it means. We'll take a look at who is integrating land acknowledgments. And I suspect that Real Talkers will have a lot to say on this. You can shine some light uh, for us on when you hear them, when you're seeing them, where you're not, and whether or not that surprises you. Before we go any further, I want to remind you quickly that you have a choice where you get your internet, electricity, and natural gas. It's a free market. And so why not choose the company, the friendly local utilities provider that supports your favorite show? We're proud to partner with Park Power. And it's never been easier to bring your business over to them. It's because their team does all the work for you. You can find all the details at parkpower.ca. Had somebody reach out to us, send us an email the other day and said, what's that promo code again? Well, it's 2021-REALTALK. When you go to parkpower.ca, bring your business over to them using the promo code 2021-REALTALK. They'll give you $70 off your first bill. Also wanted to give a big shout out. We, we mentioned that, that insight we gleaned on equalization from... Athabasca University, the Brain Trust there. Of course, they've got professors, associate professors, lecturers, experts in all kinds of fields. They're Canada's online university. And one of the things that the thousands of students at Athabasca University love is that it is customized to your schedule. You've got 40 hours in a week that you want to pour into your studies. You go for it. You need to take a week off because life happens it's no problem these are customized classes programs and courses online that offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace and you can learn more at athabascau.ca finally if it's time to upgrade your watch maybe your tablet or maybe your iphone the team at westworld computers is ready to hook you up that's right the new iphone 13 the iphone 13 pro and pro max plus the series 7 apple watch are ready to go you can learn more about it at westworld.ca don't forget you can also book your service appointment there westworld computers has been family owned for more than 40 years they are your apple experts well, this was a really interesting uh, story just last Thursday. It was October 13th when New Brunswick's Attorney General Ted Fleming issued a menu, uh, a memo. It was a directive, in fact, saying that government employees must only use ancestral acknowledgments approved by the provincial government's protocol office. Uh, the Attorney General said, as a matter of fact, that New Brunswick was forced to take this position. It's, it's a claim this has been filed by First Nation alleging the province is not upholding the peace and friendship treaties that were signed in territories that are now Maine, New Hampshire, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. Now, this is all around whether or not land is unseated or not. In our home province, you may know that Alberta's government stopped using a land acknowledgement in May of 2019. Now, other private businesses are using them. I host events professionally, you likely know. We often integrate land acknowledgements into the opening remarks. So when do they fit? When do they not? Why are they important? I'm grateful that Michelle Robinson has agreed to join us this morning. Uh, Michelle is a land acknowledgement consultant 
And she teaches organizations and companies how to develop these. And, and she consults in building indigenous inclusive policies. You may know her from her weekly podcast, The Native Calgarian, making her Real Talk debut. Michelle, it's great to have you here. Thanks for making time for us. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you to your team and uh, for reaching out. I'm really happy to talk about this issue. I think it is sorely needed to talk about. So, Can we talk about the history of land acknowledgments? I mean, there are acknowledgments of, of First Nations, of, of people that have, that have lived and, 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 of course, uh, I mean, for thousands of years across territories. It's an understanding of our collective history. Obviously, I think it's, it's, it's a reflection of, in some cases, efforts for, for reconciliation. But, but what do we know about land acknowledgments? When did they first start uh, appearing? And, and why do you think that they're so important? Uh, so traditionally, our people used to do a very uh, extensive uh, acknowledgement of the land whenever they went to visiting territories. And that's how they introduced themselves. They had ceremony and there was a process. And nat- it's a natural law, really. You walk into somebody's territory, you know, and, I mean, if I were to come to your house, I'd knock on the door, introduce myself, say hello. And if you invited me in, you know, we build up a friendship so that you felt comfortable with us becoming neighbors or however that worked. Um, that has been traditional for thousands of years between the various different nations. So <clears throat> when um, the, the king came from actually uh, Britain, they had the royal proclamation. And uh, this royal proclamation from the 1700s is actually part of our Truth and Reconciliation Commission report calls to action um, 45 and 46. Because uh, for whatever reason, the crown thought, you know, we could, we could do this nation-to-nation work. And um, I think we've seen with all of the issues that we have between Indigenous and non-Indigenous that we've we've not really fulfilled our treaties. So, um, and I would say, I was born and raised in Alberta and I never heard land acknowledgements done until more recently. And I actually heard them from out East. It was uh, the arts community that started doing it out East. And then I heard it uh, more in Alberta, a little more in the arts community. And then eventually people started to understand the gravity of needing to do this regularly. So that's my understanding of it. But I mean, honestly, there's there's so much to really unpack and, and it, I'm doing a disservice even trying to encapsulate that. Well, and, and can I acknowledge that I think that we probably, I mean, these this is going to be two people's opinions. Obviously, I, I would suggest that your opinion is certainly an informed one. And I know that you have a lot of background and awareness. You've worked in this field. Um, and that's why we're grateful for your perspective. But not everyone, uh, including uh, First Nations across uh, Canada, uh, not everybody's going to agree on land acknowledgements when they're appropriate, what they should acknowledge, et cetera. Have you been paying very close attention to, to the story out of New Brunswick? Yeah, I've been following that because I think it's relevant to the work that we're trying to do. We're in a time of reconciliation or so-called reconciliation. And um, how are we going to have any reconciliation if we don't have mutual respect for each other? And all of the treaties actually started with that mutual respect and we've never honored the treaties, which is why, of course, moving forward, that seems to be the fundamental part of even starting a relationship with reconciliation. It's acknowledging that we haven't uh, done that work properly from the beginning, from the beginning of the first treaty that we ever signed. And uh, so to me, to land acknowledgements are are incredibly important for that as well as um, 
I, I think most people are unaware what the Indian Act really is, and it, it displaced our people onto these small little parcels of land and took away our traditional territories. So I think that there's a, a real, um, you know, when you start unpacking all of the issues that we have in Canada, I think this is the fundamentals, the basics of it, uh, that of course then led to the Indian residential school uh, land clearing policies. There's so much to unpack. There was a past system at one point in time where um, as an Indigenous person, if I didn't have it on me, I would be thrown into jail. Um, you know, I had to get permission from the Indian agent in order to even leave my um, allotted reserve that they imposed on us. So, you know, there, there's so much to unpack here, and that's not even including the Métis. They have, um, you know, the older people call them road allowance people because they were pushed off of their lands, and the only place that they went was the road allowances. And I think in retrospect, I've seen a lot of older people go, oh, yeah, that's what we called them, and realized that was wrong then, and it's still wrong today. Uh, they also had land script that was uh, given to them that was taken away. So there, there's so much to unpack with uh, the problems of land uh, displacement here in Canada when it came to the settlers and the Indigenous populations. I really appreciate this comment from Jerry. She's watching us live right now on YouTube. She says, I'm really excited to hear Michelle on the show. She says, I, I just posted on our nonprofits uh, Instagram page about the importance of land acknowledgements. She says, I'm certainly going to be sharing this interview in our stories later today. Jerry, we thank you for that. Tanya and Randy have both tapped into something. I didn't want to ask you this question as the first question, but I think it's a really important one. And it's around the performative element or at least the risk of portraying some sort of a performative element. You're nodding your head already. Randy Thunderhorse says, I find land acknowledgements to be insincere and uh, to be done only to appease settler guilt. Uh, Tanya says, I sure appreciate this guest. We worry, we worry that these acknowledgements are at risk of becoming performative and losing their meaning. And I'm interested to see what she suggests there. Yeah. Um, so what I tell people is that as they develop their land acknowledgement, first and foremost, allow it to evolve, let it be a living document, because um, I think it's really important that everybody talks to the elders of the land. And as they learn uh, pieces of their stories, they can incorporate it into their land acknowledgements. As to the point about it being performative, absolutely it is. I think that if you talk to the average Canadian, they don't know anything about land acknowledgements. And I didn't even want to be teaching about land acknowledgements, but I, I had to because there was such a, a, a huge gap. Uh, the, of course, our education system doesn't teach it. Our universities try to give an overall comprehensive history of Indigenous people in general. But there, there's just there's a real need. And, and I don't understand why this isn't more available, because, you know, especially in Alberta, being uh, born and raised here, I used to draft wells, pipelines, uh, access right away, all these things to, um, you know, try to encourage our industry to do this work on the land, and yet we haven't real had uh, we haven't had real conversations about um, you know equity, <laughs> uh, sharing of resources, all of those conversations, and and ultimately it's stolen land too. So the land back movement itself has been talking about that. Eighty percent of the crown owns the land. When our people were displaced onto these small parcels, when we could be uh, using more of the land all of our national parks we were forced away from and we haven't been allowed to be taking care of that land. So we reconciliation is bigger than just um, acknowledging 
closing Indian residential school to a lot of uh, Indigenous people. I mean, if you don't have clean drinking water, if you can't use your traditional lands, if you're experiencing racism everywhere that you go, you know, these are real issues that we need to address. And of course, the land is fundamental part of it. Um, usually when I come onto a show, I, I'll, I'll say, Oki, Nagana go make oche chestakom aki. And that's the Blackfoot language attempted, my apologies to Blackfoot language keepers that I uh, mispronounced that, but I attempted to say, hi, my name's uh, Red Thunder Woman. And I do that to honor them, to honor the fact I'm on their land. I'm Satu Dene. So my mom came from way up north. Um, our band is Yellow Knife, but we come from either further north than that. And uh, she came here just like most urban uh, population does. And to uh, e even with the land acknowledgements, I see that there's a lot of exclusion from the visiting nations. There's not the inclusion of uh, understanding. There's a lot of non-status. There's so much to really unpack there. So uh, when it comes to performative, Absolutely. I'd love for all Canadians to learn about it. That's why I do this teaching and I'd be happy to do that with anyone. But for Indigenous, of course, it's free so that we can just talk about it and unpack it and talk about call to action, you know, 45, 46, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. There's so much to unpack with that. And I think it's important. And I can tell you as a drafter, we did not even show Indian residential schools uh, or Indian re reserves unless it was uh, through a Canadian land surveyor. So that was a jur different jurisdiction than an Alberta land surveyor. So it's really quite interesting the more um, you unpack uh, what hasn't been taught, despite it being industry norms, it, it needs to be included. And, and our industry needs it's so so much when, when alberta uh it's it's like the more you talk the more questions i have this is fa I, I love i love when interviews go like this but i'm just really i'm watching the clock i'm going we might need her to stay a little bit into overtime here but i you know when when alberta um on policy uh, the Alberta government stopped integrating land acknowledgement into events or into statements etc stopped using them in may of 2019 what message do you think that sent if any Oh, it sent a clear message, and it's that we don't respect Indigenous rights. And uh, I, I mean, I knew that when he was federal from the work, and, and I mean, they literally launched the I Don't Know More movement uh, because they didn't respect uh, in a jurisdiction of Indigenous in any capacity. So I wasn't surprised to see that, and I'm not surprised to see it continue, and I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, every policy that seems to come out seems to be against our community in some capacity from the, this current government. So... A uh, little bit of, um, I guess, uh, um, transparency. I did run against them because I knew this and I, I was hoping that we could make some serious changes and that Canadians, Albertans specifically, were really serious about reconciliation and would make, um, you know, have Indigenous people at the table just to start doing that work. And, um, you know, I'm seeing other other ways. I, I've seen a really great op-ed about uh the Senate being replaced with only Indigenous people. And I thought, well, that, that would at least be more respectful to the equality we were supposed to have as uh, a nation when, we've, when we first started building. So that there's lots of options. It's just a matter of seeing leadership from uh, Canadians wanting to include Indigenous people. And, and we're just going to see this until we, I mean, we've had land claim um, lawsuits for, for quite some time. And that was when we were allowed to start having land claim lawsuits. It was actually illegal for us to have legal representation up until about the 50s. So, um, you know, we have a lot of problems in Canada when it comes to um, inequality and uh, structural racism that's caused the issues we see today. 
Um, Real talkers may remember a, a recent conversation with with Negan Sinclair uh, just a short while ago where, where he touched on that, the idea of an indigenous Senate. Um, Chris Anderson, chief strategist at Y Station, one of our partners, has also talked about that. I think it's a fascinating um, thought exercise. And but it's it's one of these more when people look, I think, more for like tangible, doable things. You know, in the context of reconciliation, we're talking here about land acknowledgments. People are wondering, I mean, what what do you do with Sir John A. Macdonald statues? Uh, what do you do with neighborhoods named after Catholic bishops and priests and, uh, you know, involved in the residential school system? We've seen neighborhoods changing their names. Uh, we've seen schools with with the names changed there. I mean, there's there's a lot uh, of opportunity, I think, for for Canadians and indigenous people in Canada to start having these conversations about what reconciliation really looks like. One of the goals of this show is I think we really want to equip people with a true understanding of these issues. And so, Michelle, I want to circle back. You, you've said a couple of times that the you know the, the spirit of the treaties has not been honored and has not been respected. And I would love, and this may be obvious, but I don't think for everybody, if you could give us a couple examples of what you mean. So when people that listen to this show or watch this show are talking to their friends and are influencing their circle, uh, if someone says, well, what do you mean the treaties haven't been respected, the spirit of the treaties? What do you mean? Okay, so here in Alberta, we have treaties uh, six, seven, eight, and a little bit of four and a little bit of 10. And most people don't even know that. And that's, well, I mean, we talk about Alberta curriculum, that should be fundamental. Um, it should be on all of our maps, just like when I go into, um, you know, a county of Vulcan or, or such, there's a sign that says, you know, welcome to county of Vulcan, or thank you for visiting. Why don't we have uh, boundaries to acknowledge treaty? Um, and I know why. And, and that purpose is to erase Indigenous people in the hopes that Canada can just take over the country without... Um, you know, acknowledging it, its wrongdoings, actually. So, you know, to me, I think that's fundamentals where you have to know what treaty land that you're on. Um, the government has that. Uh, there's a course out of the uh, U of A that talks about Indigenous peoples, you know, so that the knowledge is there. It's free. And I encourage people to take that if they don't really know what I'm talking about. Uh, and there's so there's also um, post um, confederation treaties. There's pre confederation treaties. There's the numbered treaties. And then there's the land claim settlements that are continuing and ongoing. And um, and I will I want to give a shout out to the indigenous folks that are constantly going through this. Like these land claims are multi generational. So we will have folks that will be working on the same land claim and then have to pass the torch to a new generation on that same land claim so we have some that are hundreds of years old that still haven't been uh, rectified because the courts won't allow indigenous um claims in the courts there's a certain number and and this is we claim to be a country about human rights and we won't honor the very people that were originally here so i, I have so much i could say i just don't even know where to start right i well I, trust me i feel the same way sometimes in conversations like i think the, we just keep letting it flow we've got a couple of coffees here we just let it flow i mean we, yeah. gosh you and i could talk about the land back movement for an hour or for a week right i mean even yeah. that i think I see it come up in conversation. I'm not sure that the average Canadian, myself included, truly understands what the implication is. You know, I heard a couple of my friends in 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 um, in good faith having a conversation about it a few weeks ago. And one of them was exploring the idea of land back. And the other said, well, then why don't you go first? 
You know, why don't you be, why don't you give your property back? Why, why don't you go first? Why don't you be the first one? And I sat there and I went, nah, I'm not sure that that's nah, I'm not sure about if that's really the spirit of. But what are we talking about? Sure. I think a lot of folks are in the industry know that um, in order to develop wells that they have to go to the crown and get permits, et cetera, et cetera. Well, how, if, why does the crown own most of that land when they're not sharing with the indigenous people? Like that's the easiest way to start with this land back conversation is that you have um, um, I want, stolen land is the only way to say it. And I was going to try to avoid it in order to not turn off some of your viewers. But don't worry about that. Ultimately, ultimately the land is stolen and if we're going to be honest um why are we putting Cree in these small tiny reserves when that whole uh northern part of alberta really should be the place that they're allowed to hunt fish live and explore um and and we actually don't have that right to go do that right now and i think that folks well they think indigenous people get everything we don't and in fact the opposite we there's that when people say that what that says to me that they've fallen fallen for propaganda and that propaganda is there on purpose to try to uh, erase our sovereignty, erase our um, rights, erase the treaties, and erase the inherent rights that we have as Indigenous people. So there, there's that conversation that we need to understand that land back. Um, I mean, I, I'm not going to steal somebody's land, um, but at the same time, if they are so unwilling to work with us, I mean, at what point in time do we say, I don't care if you paid a mortgage for years, we didn't have mortgages, you brought that with your Western economy. So, you know, too bad for you and your generations that you paid for that. But, um, but I'm not going to go kicking off people off their farm right now, when there's 80% of the crown land that could easily be uh, shared properly with the indigenous people, and seeing us as a shareholder, a stakeholder, that's 50% of the decision making process and that's what scares people that's why the conservative governments are afraid to do land acknowledgements because they know um and and it's uh really pathetic actually of the albertans who want to separate they don't know that if they were to separate all of that land would become indigenous 100 percent. so you know that that's the legal framework that we have right now and we if we're going to be moving forward we have to start understanding this together because i don't want to see you know, people separating and not getting, you know, Canadian jurisdiction. That It's actually impossible. That That is an impossibility. So unless they want to just give 100% of the rights and title back to Indigenous people. And um, I'm not seeing that conversation in those folks that are saying let's uh, separate. So that, that bigger picture, um, I just, uh, Ryan, you spoke about wanting tangible things. Honestly, reconciliation is everywhere. And I think that, you know, um, we, your producers had had wrote me and they said, but the Edmonton Oilers has a land acknowledgement. And I think that I'm sad that that's what it's going to take for our government to change is that they're going to have to see it from private industry. They're going to have to see it from all of the sports clubs, all of the folks that are willing to uh, do this land acknowledgement and, um, and then basically be pressured into it so that we can start moving forward. Government moves at the uh, you know, speed of a turtle. So I think that uh, the rest of us ha- can do that work. And, you know, I've seen a lot of folks that are just regular Canadians wanting to do what's tangible for this. And the first thing I tell them, land acknowledgements, it's the first thing you can do. Uh, then start reading about Indigenous people, because like a lot of us don't have the time to do a lot of work. But, you know, you devote an hour to Indigenous content a, a week. And before you know it, you are starting to understand the issues a lot more. Hmm. 
that that Oilers land acknowledgement is interesting. Um, I, I know that it uh, this sounds gauche to put it this way, but I know that it it played very well with the crowd in attendance at the season opener. People indicated their do I say approval of it or maybe their appreciation of it when it rolled. I mean, I I hosted the game when the Edmonton Oilers opened Rogers place, uh, which, you know, I guess that was four years ago. And uh, there was a very anybody that was there will remember that there was an, a, a very significant indigenous element to the so-called opening ceremony, uh, including a drum circle and uh, First Nation uh, leaders, uh, including chiefs that were in attendance. And it, it was, a, <clears throat> I think, a very powerful statement. And I think the team deserves some credit for that. Uh, what sort of an impact does that have? With with regards well, to like, I mean, the Oilers are the biggest brand in Edmonton, period. Uh, so what impact does that have? Yeah, I, it's it's huge. And I think my uh, late uncle was actually there, uh, mm. Fred Sasakamus, and uh, just going to do a plug for his book right now. Um, so, you know, that bigger picture that uh, like I literally had family there and I I'm a diehard Flames fan. I don't know why my family is very, you know, uh, embarrassed by that on a regular basis. But, you know, for me, it's uh, really incredible to see that Indigenous inclusion and there are sports calls to action. This is such simple work to do to include Indigenous people and acknowledge us as neighbours. I mean, we do that for every other community and I don't understand. Well, I, I know why. We, the sooner we erase the Indigenous community, the sooner that people feel legitimate in the place of Canada. And that's number one reason why we need land acknowledgements. But two, it wouldn't have to be this way if we would have just had equality to begin with. Um, you know, Indigenous, we don't necessarily own the land in the same way that a uh, settler or Canadian would think in owning the land. Uh, we see ourselves as stewardships to it. So, you know, that bigger picture that we could could have worked together, but um, instead, Canadians and settlers took that as, a, oh, we can own the land and just push people off. And that's not what is happening. So when we see, uh, you know, folks like the Edmonton Oilers do this work, it's really important to signal, you know, Canadians are shifting. And I think um, you, you spoke about that land acknowledgement last night and the Oilers had done I think there's a bigger picture now that uh, the 215 bodies were found that people recognize we've really messed up this history. We've really messed up and we have to make amends in a better way. And we've given the guidelines. We gave the guidelines in 1996, actually, as a Royal, I'm getting the Royal Proclamation mixed up with the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. and that was done in 1996. Now we have 94 calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report. And there's actually now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. So the guidelines are there. It's not like we don't come to the table with solutions. And my hope is, is that people will start finding one of those things that they know is for them that is tangible that they can start working on because there is so much we can do. And for folks who have influence in their companies, maybe community associations or sports clubs, you know, these are things that we can incorporate quite easily and start on a better relationship together. But that bigger picture too, that uh, because of the the racism and marginalization and barriers Indigenous face, having um, a recognition of that and that makes it more inclusive for our youth that are trying to come up and, uh, you know, live, work, play in these communities as well. Uh, I know that 
people are having the conversations around reconciliation across Canada. Obviously, um, I just just about eight hours ago got back from the, the South Gulf Islands uh, in BC, and uh, we're, we're driving. Um, you know, I mean, uh, these. I mean, it's just a beautiful part of the country, and um, and and driving on on these islands and seeing the imagery. Uh, there's obviously a huge indigenous presence and, and rich indigenous history in that in that part of Canada. Um, there were orange shirts, orange flags on on private properties uh, spotting the island that I was able to see, which is very powerful. Of course, a little bit north from there, uh, relatively recently, the the Queen Charlotte Islands. Uh, Canadians were reminded <laughs> that that region has been known as Haida Gwaii for, for, for quite some time. And it, it's always interesting for me. And I think that travel is so important, to, to say the least. Um, and I'm just talking about going one province over. Uh, but it's fascinating when, when you look back. And, and, and I don't think that we're far enough removed from it yet to truly process what happened in Canada four months ago. With that appalling, and I don't even want to use the word discovery because it was not a discovery in a sense. It was a reminder outside that uh, former Kamloops Indian Residential School of those 215 unmarked graves and then Cowessus First Nation and then the many others and the numbers now in the thousands of, of children's graves. Survivors and indigenous elders and storytellers were, were sharing this with Canadians. We're, we're telling this. We're essentially screaming it for for years and for whatever reason, it didn't resonate until it did. And I think that we'll look back on that as, a, as sort of an awakening of sorts. It, it obviously begs the question of what the hell took so long. Um, yeah. but, uh, but I do feel that there's a different approach. Do you feel it too? I mean, you and I have different family backgrounds. We have different traditions, obviously. You and I both grew up in the same part of the country in different contexts uh, and have different perspectives gleaned from that. But but I feel like there's more sincerity from people. And I feel like there's more of a sense of of urgency. Not to be glib about this, but, you know, when you run into an old high school friend on the street and you go, we should get together. But it's like you're like, we're not getting together. You just want to get out of the city. We should get together for sure. Send me an email for sure. We'll get together. But now people are like, no, it, it actually has to, we, we got to do something. Uh, we've got to make this right, or at least do what we can to try to make this right. Do you feel that? I do. I feel it really strong because I think um, this generation and the next generations are a lot more serious about and understand that, you know, we're not going to move forward unless we start dealing with this. So for me, um, you know, huge shift in the conversation. Now that said, I mean, I can tell you, I experienced racism on Saturday uh, when I was out and about yesterday. I just stayed at home with a migraine. Today I'm going to be at home. But, you know, we are starting to see some change, but there, there's so much anti-Indigenous bias and it's taught through, um, you know, these type of conservative governments that are like, we're not even going to do a land acknowledgement because we don't want to uh, legitimize their position in any uh, capacity. And, and our elders always warn us that, you know, it comes in cycles, uh, talking about Indigenous issues and that we're at the top of the cycle. And the hope is, is that we will make uh, some more strides in changing. And I think there is because we have like all of these uh, Indigenous lawyers that are coming up and making significant changes. And I think that um, 
the kids get it. Like the, the youth get it. They, they want to make these changes right away. But as parents, are we still voting in people that are in denial of the issue of racism, the issue of Indigenous inclusion, Indigenous education? Uh, today is a big day. And uh, you talked earlier about um, changing names. And one of the initiatives that we have here, I, I run a book club, and a lot of the folks from that wanted to do something tangible. And something tangible was trying to get that Langevin name change done. So a lot of our, our group worked on that until they finally were shamed into changing the name and that of course happened because of the discovery rediscovery the reminder of the uh, bodies that were in one of the nations and then of course as you said they were coming around you know it, that's a hard conversation for me because i know when i've visited my granny's um, indian residential school grounds they before trc they had a huge plaque with all of the names of people that had died and you know they have white rocks that you're supposed to walk in a path because we know their graves everywhere but we don't we didn't have the money resources and and jurisdiction even to be doing that work um and that's another point i'd like to make i tried to go to a local uh, indian residential school the dunbor and the farmer wouldn't even let me on his grounds and i know the red deer industrial uh, school grounds which had one of the highest amount of children die um, it's private farm now and i if there was a conversation to have about land back i don't understand why anybody would want to be plowing over the graves of dead children i just don't I can't comprehend it, and I don't know why that's perfectly allowed and acceptable in most of Western Alberta um, or Western Canada, and uh, shouldn't be allowed anywhere. These should be memorial sites, and I'm sure anybody would be offended if I even suggested that we could go over to Europe and sell off some of the graves that our Canadian soldiers are under and allow farmers to plow over them now. I'm sure that would be very offensive to most people, but yet that's standard here in Canada. I appreciate your candor. That uh, that just smacked me in the face as it should. And these are the conversations we need to have. They're difficult ones, and that's the whole point. And uh, I'm grateful for your insight. I'm looking forward already to our next conversation. Um, we'll continue conversations. As I mean, we, we have sort of like short and long-term planning with regards to the editorial direction of this show, and we do intend uh, to have more fulsome conversations about land back and what it means and what it entails and what's doable. Is there precedent set? Um, and I'll look forward to welcoming you back to the show. I'm, I, I think we could have a pretty great panel discussion on that if you'd agree, Michelle. Thanks for your time this morning. I'm really honored to be here. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. I know I've seen some of uh, amazing folks come on this show, so I'm really excited. And I appreciate that offer to come back and I'd be honored to come back anytime I can. You got it. We'll make it happen. You can subscribe to Red Thunder Woman, a.k.a. Michelle Robinson's weekly podcast, The Native Calgarian Podcast. And of course, you can check it out at nativecalgarian.com. That's Michelle Robinson joining us live on Real Talk on this Monday morning. This feels like a, a a sensible time. It feels like a perfect time to get into the results of our most recent question of the week. Uh, this was presented uh, by our friends, our official research and strategy partners at Y Station. Uh, still to come on the show today, a judge from Canada's Drag Race, Brooklyn Heights. Looking forward to that conversation uh, in just a moment. But let's get into this. We asked you uh, a while ago. Of course, it feels like a while ago as we had the, the week away from the studio. But in our most recent Get Real question of the week, we asked you how, if and how, you observed Canada's inaugural National Day for Truth 
and reconciliation. Uh, we kept the survey open from October 4th through the 17th, uh, right up until last night. And we appreciate the hundreds of you that completed those surveys online. If you support us on Patreon, number one, thank you. And number two, you've got the full top line report in your email inbox right now. So you can check that out. You can dig into the results. Uh, 14 pages worth of uh, results uh, sorted and put together by the team at Y Station. A real quick note, as mentioned, we'll launch our next question of the week tomorrow on Tuesday, once we know the results of Alberta's municipal elections. Sam, let's get into to some of the notable results. Uh, those of you that responded to our question of the week, 86% of you, 86% of respondents to our survey recognized the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, almost nine out of 10. So that was pretty encouraging. Two out of three of you, 67% of you reported learning something new about residential schools, indigenous culture, or perspectives. And I thought that that was fantastic. I think that's that's pretty solid. Two out of three respondents saying that they learned something new, which is kind of at least part of the whole point. Here's another interesting result from our survey. 89% of you Nearly nine in 10 again of real talkers believe that the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation should be a statutory holiday across the country, including in Alberta. Alberta, one of the jurisdictions that did not recognize it as a stat. And here's another interesting one. 47% half of real talkers, one in two, believe that elected leaders should only focus on issues of reconciliation for the duration of the national day for truth and reconciliation that's one that i get hung up on a little bit uh because i think just to be uh, a bit of a details guy i think oftentimes when it comes to leadership there are requirements of leaders that 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 may prompt them to step outside the context of any particular day. However, you've got to be very aware of how that plays publicly in the message that it sends. A classic example might be, and I know that some of you will roll your eyes at me bringing this up, but the prime minister and the Trudeau family's getaway to Tofino on September 30th on that national day for truth and reconciliation. Some people said, well, the spirit of the day is for a personal reflection, for introspection. And who's to say the prime minister is not doing that? Others are saying, would you be OK? And this is my position, to be honest. And I think it's very fair. I mean, there, there, you could poke a whole bunch of holes in, in, in the comparison. But for purposes of having this resonate with people, how would you feel about the prime minister and his family vacationing and walking on the beach in Tofino on Remembrance Day? And so I think when we go back to that question on whether or not elected political leaders should be focusing on anything else on that national day for truth and reconciliation, if you were to ask the same question, should they focus on anything else on Remembrance Day, you'd probably get people feeling very strongly about that as well. Not to say that they abdicate their responsibilities, not to say that there aren't other things going on. But that was one of the interesting questions, and I wasn't surprised. I don't know about the two of you, Sam and Sarah, but I was not surprised to see the numbers dip there. 
You know, it was like 86 percent of people recognize the holiday. Eighty nine percent of people believe that it should be uh, a stat uh, in every province, including Alberta. You know, 67 percent of people learn something. Well, 47 percent of people believe that elected officials should only focus on reconciliation on that day. I wasn't surprised to see the numbers drop a little bit lower there. It's not to say that it devalues the day or the purpose of the day, but I think that people may find some nuance in that uh, with regards to practicalities like government operations. I mean, do you essentially want your federal government to to take a day away from all other files to 100 percent focus on this? That's the question you ask people. Right. And you got to ask people, I think, the same question about their own backyard. Did you take that day Mm. to focus solely on reconciliation? Or did you perhaps reflect on it for a moment and then move on to other things? Or did you perhaps reflect on it? Not at all. So it's the question we asked people. And we got some really interesting responses as well. I mean, there was there was a fairly heated conversation among real talkers, to be honest. I mean, we ask you to fill in the blanks on some of these. Some of you go through and you complete our question of the week in, in one minute. And that's totally great. And it's amazing. And we appreciate it. Others of you really take some time and you write us these longer form, very thoughtful responses. And many of you felt that the prime minister made a mistake on that day, but a large uh, number of you as well felt that prime minister Trudeau has, has done a lot with regards to indigenous communities in Canada. And some of you told us that you believe that the national media took away from the day. In other words, coverage compromised the day with such a focus on what was happening in Tofino. So how did you recognize national the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation? About 40% of you said that you watched or listened to a TV or radio special. Appreciate the literally thousands of you that downloaded our special edition episode on that September 30th day. You can still go back. It was a day full of, of wonderful conversations with indigenous community leaders uh, in many different jurisdictions, uh, including Dr. James McCokus. What an amazing and powerful opening interview that was. I won't soon forget that. 20% of you said that you watched a speech or participated in a webinar in order to better educate yourselves. 15% of you said that you read a book or a story from an indigenous author. One in 10 of you, 10%. And I think I'll include myself in this. I think we can do better. We can do better. One in 10 said that you read the TRC report on the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. I'd love to see that number be 50% or 75%, even if you've read it before. As a reminder of sorts, 1% of respondents took the day to read the report on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. 1%. While 14% of you told us you did not recognize the National Day. Others of you said that you held a private family circle to remember and honor family members that survived residential schools. What about this? An audience member said you went to the Healing Garden in St. Albert and met up with a group of friends, including survivors, family members. You learned how that Healing Garden was created and some of the history uh, between 1870 and 1963 stood around in a circle, says this real talker, passing around tobacco. And ultimately placing it in the middle of the circle with a prayer for those who were in those institutions, those who never made it home, those who are still suffering, those on the streets, those who suffer alone. You say it was a spontaneous circle of, li- of learning and love. That's amazing. 
Another one of you spoke with your three-year-old to help him understand why he was wearing an orange shirt that day. When he says, as a teacher, I learned more about artwork inspired by the residential school experience by artists Carrie Newman and Brianna Bear. Used these pieces of art in class to inspire students to create their own art that builds on the artist's ideas. Another one of you says, I worked that day. There wasn't a lot of time left in the day to do very much, but I did have intentional discussion with family members. When we asked what you learned, this was really interesting insight. One of you said you learned that we still have much to learn, that when it comes to a national day for reflection, this won't be a one and done type scenario. Reconciliation will take years, but the journey will be worth the, the destination. Another, another one of you says, I learned the story of Orange Shirt Day by listening to Real Talk. It was extremely powerful. The story offered further insight. Now, that was on our September 29th show. You said further insight into the pain and trauma as well as the strength and resilience that residential school survivors have. I learned a lot about emotional connections and how there is still so much work left to do. We appreciate every moment that you take to chime in. And to share your perspectives with regards to our question of the week, it gives us great insight into where the audience is at, where you'd like our content to go, the types of conversations you're eager to have on this program. And as mentioned, we'll launch our next uh, question of the week. That'll be tomorrow once we know the results of Alberta's municipal elections. Let me take a second to remind you that our friends of the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park are looking forward to Miracle Treat Day It's coming up on Thursday, October 28th. That's 10 days from now, so mark your calendars. On that day, all Blizzard sale proceeds, not the profits, every single cent that they raise at the Dairy Queens and Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road are going to go to the Stollery Children's Hospital. The locations do take pre-orders, and they offer, get this, free delivery for larger orders. Uh Uh-huh. So if you work somewhere where there's 10 or 30 or 150 people and you'd love to drop a blizzard order on your workplace and make somebody's day, why not drop off blizzards somewhere to show appreciation? You can mention Miracle Treat Day. You let them know you're a real talker. And the Dairy Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and Baseline Road will be happy to collaborate with you on a pre-ordered and delivered Order of Blizzards. Our friends at Friesen Brothers also want to remind you that coming up November 1st is another 15% off day at their 16 locations across the province of Alberta. That's right. On the first day of every month from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., Friesen Brothers offers 15% off every purchase over $75 Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years has been Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Well, the minute that Sarah Hoyles, the editorial producer of this show, announced that our next guest had confirmed an appearance on Real Talk, you all chimed. I mean, I don't know if we've seen an outpouring of excitement, people chiming in on how excited they were 
to see Real Talk welcome the so-called Queen of the North. You know them as a judge on Canada's drag race as a runner-up second finisher in the 11th season of RuPaul's drag race, Brooklyn Heights, a.k.a. Brock Edward Hayhoe, a Canadian drag queen, <laughs> ballet dancer, performer, television personality, making his Real Talk debut. Welcome to the show and thanks for making time for us this morning. Oh my God, thank you for having me. That was quite the introduction. I don't know if I've ever been introduced with my full Christian name before, Brock Edward Hayhoe. You, you said the whole thing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I was I was telling these two that a former colleague of yours um, is, is a good friend of mine, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. And I always I always say to oh! Jeff, and I always say to Jeffrey, we go way back to Red Deer. Uh, he and he, he and my wife were, were high school friends, and so I've known Jeffrey for a long time. But I always I love it. I said I said that when you have the three names. The three names like Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is just it's just so much more powerful. It just infuses that celebrity aura. You know what I mean? That's so that's so true. That's so funny. I literally ran into Jeffrey in the washroom of LAX yesterday. Yesterday. Um, yesterday I ran into him. And another funny story about Jeffrey, when I first met him on season one of Canada's Drag Race, I made the mistake of calling him Jeff at one point. And oh he, he was he stopped. He was Oh yeah, that he was like it's Jeffrey. He was like actually you're the only person I will let call me Jeff, but nobody else is ever allowed to call me that. I was like noted. So yeah. I, I I just never called him that again either. I was like I'm just going to leave it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was uh you you two were uh dynamite together and and had a real Thank chemistry. You. I'm not I'm not going to make the interview about Jeffrey, uh but but while while we're talking about him, it was I don't know mm -hmm. if 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 you want to dig into this or not, but there was there was a, a lot of real controversy. Um I I know he pulled down his Twitter account based on a lot of the stuff that was that was going on. A lot of people were really tough on him uh, for the personality mm -hmm. that he was as part of the show. Um, what was that like for you to experience and to, and to see play out on a show that I know that for the most part, people feel is a pretty positive show? Completely. It was horrible. It was horrible. I felt so bad for him. And I... I got a little, uh, I got a little bit of backlash for the season as well. Not nearly to the degree that he did, but it was really tough. Um, but it kind of bonded us together a little bit because we would talk every week and kind of like help each other out. Um, and I just think the way he handled it all was really, really classy. Like he never got involved. He never clapped back. He kind of really just took the high road with it. But I, I know it was really tough for him as it would be for anybody. And then also if you put on top of that, we were in the middle when the show was airing, we were in the middle of COVID and then we were in the middle of that horrible election that was happening down here. So it was just like all of these things compounding on top of each other. And there was so much stress and tension in the air. It was tough, but mm -hmm. yeah, he handled it like an absolute pro. Are you in LA right now? I am. And it's raining. Well, Weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to, uh, we're we're about to get like blizzard as you know for the you, you grew up in toronto right so you've seen is that right toronto yeah I think? yeah so yeah, you, you, yeah toronto you know you've seen some gnarly weather before i, I would take rain in oh, la yeah. i would take rain in la any day um but it's just weird it never happens here <laughs> the reason the reason i was i wanted to make sure you're in california right now is to is to point out that we're, we're talking right now at just after 10 o'clock mountain time it's just after nine o'clock pacific and i i wondered i said when 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 the shot comes up when we take your shot live, am I going to see Brooklyn or am I going to see Brock? And I'm curious. You, to know, you get Brock. You look <laughs> Brock. Sorry. You look fabulous today. Your skin is glowing. Your hair looks great. But but when Brooklyn Heights 
hits that runway or or takes mm-hmm. to the television set. Can you give us a sense of what goes in to, to, to not just the physical preparation, not just the hair and the makeup and the wardrobe, but but the, I would imagine there's somewhat of a of a of you, you integrate into your character's mindset or like what goes into becoming Brooklyn Heights? Oh, my goodness. That is a loaded question. Well, uh, a couple hours of hair and makeup for sure. I look, as you can see, this is me in my natural state. Um, when I'm a boy, I like to be very relaxed. I like to be just very casual because when when I'm in drag, it's so deeply uncomfortable <laughs> that when, I'm, when I get to be just me, I just got to relax and just like breathe and let my body breathe. Um, but there's so much preparation that goes into becoming me, especially for something like uh, Canada's Drag Race, because I have to work with designers to create these looks and you have to create the outfit and then you have to figure out what hair you're going to wear with it. Then you have to figure out what accessories are going to go with it. And then you have to figure out what makeup con- makeup concept you're going to do with it. So and I, and I do that all myself. Like I um, I. I don't do the hair and makeup myself, but I, I am a part of the whole process. I, um, I have meetings with everybody and we just kind of figure it all out and it's a lot of work and you have to do that. I think I have 10 looks on the show plus my promo looks. So I had to come up with 11 different looks um, and it's a, a large amount of work. And then once you get in drag, you're in drag and you're in drag all day because <laughs> like I'm filming a show like this, it, it, it's a long process. Um, and yeah, it's a lot, but it's really fun. It's really rewarding. Um, but I think the kind of switch that happens, I don't know if I have like a personality switch when I'm in drag, but you definitely feel yourself. Like when you look good, you're just kind of like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> and you feel it. And I think my drag character is very intimidating. Um, I get that a lot from people that I'm just naturally, I'm a large person. I'm 6'3 out of heels. So then you slap me in a pair of five inch heels and I'm a giant. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think my, what I try to channel and emulate always is I'm obsessed with like the 90s supermodels, that era of the Glamazon. So that's really my gig. So when I'm walking that runway, I'm just trying to give you like, a fierce I, can i swear on this show yeah you can say whatever you want great i, I i'm a fierce bitch like I, I that's what i try to give you and i try to i try to i fuck that camera yeah when i'm walking that runway i stare usually you have to stare directly into its soul and you just have to make love to it yeah i fucking cameras is kind of i think that, that, that that's advice that spans beyond <laughs> industries isn't yes. it yes yeah, you got to eye fuck it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Did you? Because you're you have a you have a, a, a storied uh, history when it comes to your ballet career as well, right? You were at the mm-hmm. uh, at, at the National Ballet School of Canada. Uh, at what point mm-hmm. did you take that ability as a performer and mm-hmm. and and realize that you could channel it into other areas, including drag? Where did that happen? Well, that happened kind of while I was at the ballet school. I think it was in my first or second year. I joined in grade 10 and I stayed to grade 12. And then I actually stayed two extra years after. They have um, a post-intensive dance program um, that you can take if you're not quite ready to become a professional dancer yet. But I think it was grade 10 or 11. um, A friend of mine showed me um, a DVD of uh, Ballet Trocadero de Monte Carlo. Uh, And for those of you who don't know, that is an all-male ballet company that does the male and the female roles um and they dance on point um so it's basically like a drag drag queen ballet company and that blew my mind i i had no idea that existed or that was even a thing so um and i i just saw it and i immediately was like i want to do that 
Like that looks like something I would really enjoy because I've never, even my whole ballet career, even when I was starting out, I honestly just had no interest in the male roles, the male steps. I wanted to be the swan. I wanted to be Princess Aurora. Like I wanted to be the beautiful like ballerina. I wanted to be the ballerina. I never wanted to be the prince, did not care. And then I saw this and I was like, oh, this is a thing that I could actually do. Yeah. So that was in my, that that's kind of when it, the seed was planted. And then, um, I actually, once I finished my post-intensive program in Toronto, um, I think it was about 20 years old, and I actually went and auditioned for the company in New York, and they loved me and they wanted to accept me, but unfortunately, because I had no professional experience, they, they, they said, go go away, get a couple years of professional experience in another dance company, just so for work visa sakes, because getting a work visa to the States is very hard if you have no professional experience. So they're like, go away, get some experience so we can build up your resume for your visa, and then we will hire you. So I ended up getting a job in Cape Town, South Africa, um, with Cape Town City Valley. That was my first professional gig. And I moved down there, and I was there for two years when it was an amazing period in my life, but it was always in the back of my head. I was like, I need to get back to that company because that's where I belong. So after two years, I was like, knock, knock, knock. I have professional experience. Can I have a job now? And they hired me. I got my visa and I, I moved to New York and I lived there um, for four years and we toured all over the world um, being as a drag ballerina. And it was really in that time period that I realized like, yeah, I like ballet, but drag is my passion hmm. and like very as the years went on like i kind of and ballet hurts your body it's not it's not a it's not a nice uh art form on your body as as like any any professional athlete will tell you like it it really takes a toll after a while and we were dancing so much and my knees were going and i was just getting old and rickety and <laughs> i was like well I, I was like, I literally everything just hurt all the time. And so th I started falling out of love with ballet and I was like, I don't want that to happen. And I really, really was enjoying the drag aspect of it. I saw more. So I was like, let me leave ballet behind for a second. Let me stop doing that professionally and let me try to make it professionally as a drag queen. And that's kind of, so that's when I, I gave up my professional ballet career and I moved back to Toronto and I started doing drag and the rest kind of just snowballed from there. <laughs> Brock, if you ever need to feel better about yourself, um, I'd invite you to come watch my men's league basketball team. We are old. And if anybody's old and rickety, um, I can barely walk for like three days after we play basketball. So I wouldn't feel I've seen you on stage. I think you're doing just fine. I was telling Sarah before a producer here on the show, uh, I said w w when we introduce you as the queen of the north. Um, I've got to be careful because the so-called queen, so queen of the north that's right because <laughs> because you know there are anti-monarchists that are or or you know perhaps even more specifically monarchists that would really take issue with it I once introduced the princess of Canada on my show and I faced major backlash but in all seriousness oh, no. what does it what does it mean like you're you are seen as uh, right now and I don't know if you're going to like the attention right now or not or if you're going to like this proclamation but essentially the, the queen of the north I mean there's you're not the only drag queen in Canada there are many talented no. ones how did you become yes. the cream that rose to the top what was the secret of your success what did you do differently well I think going back to my ballet career I really set myself apart that way I used my ballet training a lot in my drag numbers, especially when I competed in pageants and stuff, I would dance on point. And that was really not any something that anybody else was doing at that time at the level that I was doing it. So I think that really set me apart immediately. Um, and then 
I think I just worked really, really hard. Honestly, I worked so hard. I was so driven. I was so focused. Um, I was so hungry for it. Um, so I, I just really worked my ass off to get myself where I am. I had, I knew what I wanted and I just really, really went for it. Um, so I think that might be the secret to my success. I'm also really big on being a professional. I mean, I, that's not a word you associate with drag queens a lot, <laughs> but, and, but that has served me so well because in my ballet career, I was drilled into us that like, if you are on time, you are late. If you're 15 minutes early, you're on time. Like, I know how to work as a team. I know how to value other people's time. And I think that also has served me very well in my career because again, that's not something that happens a lot in the drag world. Drag queens are notoriously late for everything and kind of on their own time. And I was just always there ready to go, ready to get the job done. And people took notice of that and um, would always hire me back for stuff. But yeah, I just think it's, I, I worked really hard and I, I, I guess I'm talent. I had a talent that I could, monetize on <laughs> yeah well and, and you sure have you're the you're you're Thank essentially you. i mean you you went from from a contestant right on, mm-hmm. on rupaul's drag race to to now the judge and host i mean a hundred thousand dollar grand prize up for grab on on canada's drag race i mean it's it's really it's amazing to see what that show i mean what what Ru- rupaul in particular in the franchise and the show has done for drag Right. I mean, it's, oh, it's it, incredible. It's amazing. I think like I think back to my high school days or, or maybe just early in the university days. And I remember when it, it felt like and that may this may also have something to do with growing up in somewhat of a, a conservative scenario in, in southern Alberta and all that kind of stuff, too. I, I'll issue that caveat. But it felt sort of risque, right? Like to go to go to a drag show or to see drag queens at Pride. It was, even twenty years ago, it was like whoa, right? And now it's just like mainstream. Do you think a big part of that is because of the show, because of RuPaul? Even that's the whole part of it. I yeah. mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, drag used to be underground. It was punk. It was taboo. It was all those things. And what uh, RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race has done, it, it has made it mainstream. It has made it a bona fide industry. Um, and it has just opened so many doors for all of us. And they're, they're, you're always going to get the people who are like, oh, drag used to be punk. It used to be underground. Yeah, it absolutely did. But we were also getting paid $25 for a booking, if anything. Like we, There was no way to really make an actual living off of it um, and make a career for yourself off of it. So I... Yeah, and it, I, for me, I, we have RuPaul to entirely thank for that because without that show, drag would still very much be an underground thing. What do you think the future of drag looks like? If you're, I mean, if there's like a, you know, like a 12 year old or a 15 year old or an 18 year old that that watches this interview, and of course, there no doubt will be. What's mm-hmm. your What's your advice? I mean, you've had this phenomenal journey. And it's mm-hmm. obviously there's been a lot of hustle and a lot of hard work. And you talked about how you're going out and getting that experience and circling back and and creating a space for yourself it, to a certain degree, manifesting mm-hmm. some of your destiny. But what might be your advice to the aspiring queens? I mean, my advice is, well, it's it's hard now because there's so many drag queens, like like especially with the creation of the show drag that has also created a whole new crop of drag queens. Everybody wants to be a drag queen now because they see the show and they're like, oh, I can get on this. I can be famous. So my best advice is always figure out what you do well and figure out how to capitalize on that um, and figure out how you can make yourself unique because at this point we have so many and we don't need another Trixie Mattel. We don't need another Alyssa Edwards. We don't need another Katya. Like we 
We want you. We want an, another individual. We want something we've never seen before. And that's a tricky thing to do, but um, it's a fun process to just kind of figure out how um, how you can make yourself unique and stand out from the pack. I have a I have a, a question. And I'm not sure how to ask it without. I don't want to send the wrong message. Um, okay. But I'm so I'm looking at people follow you on on uh, on Instagram. By the way, shout out to your Instagram mm-hmm. profile photo. Every child matters. Uh, at at B Heights. That's B H Y T E S. One point two million followers. Obviously, an enormous <laughs> following on Instagram. You're a Canadian talent that's living and working and making it in the United States. And I had an interesting Uh conversation with a friend just yesterday as we acknowledged the four year anniversary of Gord Downey's passing. I can't believe it's been four years already, but it got us talking about Canadians, talented Canadians that have either made it in Canada or that have made it in the States or made it internationally. And I'm curious to know, you've you've obviously made it internationally. You have literally Mm -hmm. millions of fans. People follow your every move. People were thrilled that you're going to be here on this show. You're now hosting Canada's drag race. And I think mm-hmm. some people will probably be like, yeah, but it's like it's like the Canadian version. And you know how there's has that kind of a connotation that may be fair or may not be fair. But people talk about there's like a Canadian lens through which people see the arts. How do mm-hmm. you what would you say to people that that would you know, I guess my question is, could you have made it? so to speak, had you stayed in Canada? Could you have made it like you have now had you stayed in Toronto? I mean, I don't know if I could have. Like, the only, well, the only reason I made it is because I left Canada, Mm. you know? Like, I got on the American version of the show, which then took me back to Canada. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I, I guess I could have made it in a way... I don't think I could have made it as well. Like I'm sure had I not moved to the States and then Canada's drag race would have inevitably happened with or without me. So I guess I wouldn't have been the host of the show and then I would have been a contestant on the show, but then there already would have been a host of Canada's drag race. So it wouldn't have, I don't think it would have worked out as well. You know, like I think, I think my journey uh, worked out the exact way it was supposed to. Um, And the, the the thing about living in the States, being Canadian, I work a lot in Canada, but living in the States is just so much easier because I'm already a Canadian citizen. I could just go back up there and work, but I'm not, if I lived in Canada, it's a lot harder for me to work down in the States. You know what I mean? Yeah. With the visas and everything. So it just makes, it's a lot easier for me to live down here right now. Yeah. I mean, and not everybody can make it happen. And, and when you do, mm-hmm. it's absolutely fantastic. J- fantastic. Jill's, Jill's watching today. Um, how, <laughs> how's this for a compliment? Jill says you're the only person she likes from Toronto. So that's kind of a, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a compliment. Um, but thank the, you. But the, <laughs> the real compliment, she says, I tuned in and I happen to know that Jill's from Montreal originally, by the way. And she says, well, that makes sense. She says, I tuned into one episode of drag race. And a few weeks later, I had watched several seasons and I knew all the lingo there's there's something about it isn't there it's fun it's 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 just a kind of a great all-encompassing show i mean you get the drama you get the transformation you get like your heartstrings get pulled at you get you laugh like it really kind of has everything it's a really really fun show in terms of reality tv well we're we're thrilled that you were able to make time for us 
Um, thank you so much, uh, especially doing it an hour ahead of the time that the rest of us woke up. That's not lost on us. <laughs> and uh, we don't ignore that at all. People can follow you uh, again on Instagram at B Heights uh, on Twitter as well. B Heights one. They can check out Brooklyn And of course, they can catch you as the star. That I know you'll deflect. Let me say one of the stars, but the star of Canada's drag race with a one hundred thousand dollar grand prize up for grabs. Brooklyn Heights. Tax free. Tax free. Because we, we don't tax our prize money in Canada. So you That's actually right. get $100,000. And may I just say, you have yeah. you have an excellent voice. Oh. You have a great Yeah. Thanks. Is this like your natural voice? Is this how you talk all the time? Somebody asked me that last week. I did a speech at Lethbridge College and they were like, is that the real voice or is that a. Is that like how you order coffee? Uh, I'd like a. Double, double. I guess it depends on, you know, if I'm trying to impress them or not. You know, I'd like a, a dark <laughs> I roast. love it. I think it's great. You know, I'd take oh, my wow. You know what I mean? Um, that was very sexy. I, I, well, and I, I don't mind having this conversation with you because you understand getting into character, popping in and yes. out. I mean, you get all the, you know, all the... Who knows? Maybe you'll find me in drag one of these days, Brooklyn. You could help me out. I mean, I would be I'd be like maybe I'd be like six one in heels. So I wouldn't have quite the same uh, stature as you. But if I was looking for tips, I'd know where to go. I love it. I love I love I love your you have a great voice. I think it's amazing. Well, I'm going to walk with that all week. So thank you very much. Oh, before we go, I what you scratched my back. Let me scratch yours. Kelly Joe was watching earlier and and she this is not a well, it is a serious question but it's not going to be a hard hitter she said okay. she says his skin is just radiant and i know Thank that th- thousands so thousands of people would say to me why when you had them here did you not ask about the skincare routine why don't we go with that because you're putting on makeup and taking it off all the time i am and people know that that can have real implications on the health of your skin so what's your secret mm-hmm. spill it Smell it. Well, I, I have several t- secrets and I'm very transparent about this. I have Botox and fillers, which does help with the plumpness and firmness of your skin. Um, and I think that's just something that everyone does these days. But in terms of um, skin tre- uh, skin routine, I use Kiehl's. I use the or- Ordinary, which is a great brand and extremely affordable. And I also use Creme de la Mer, which is extremely not affordable. <laughs> but it's like, but it's like my little bougie thing that I do. So I, I kind of have like a a combination of different brands that I use. Um, Laneige is also really great. And I like to mix it up. So I, cause I find like after a while your skin gets used to something and it doesn't react as well to it. So I like to like mix it up every once in a while and try different things. I love it. Uh, Brock, AKA Brooklyn. Thank you so much. This has obviously been so much fun. Thanks for taking the time. Thank for us. you. And we're looking forward to seeing the rest of the season. Yes. Um, and thank you for having me. Can you just do one thing for me? Can you just say goal? Goal? Like score yeah, like, a like a sport, like a sports presenter would, like a, a like a soccer voice. goal, like and goal! he's getting the goal. There you go. <laughs> Brooklyn Heights. Now my week is complete. Thank you. <laughs> you have my permission. If you're looking for a new ringtone, you got it. <laughs> thanks brooklyn have an amazing rest of your day i don't know where you go from there i feel like it's not we just roll right into positive reflections i mean nobody's having a bad time right now uh 
Sharon's wondering, did you not walk in heels for charity, Jesperson? I did for many years. It was my it was my honor to participate in the Walk a Mile fundraiser for the YWCA. Nobody feels women or, or people that wear heels had no sympathy, nor should you. Uh, for for the gripes and the complaining, we would we would we'd wear these heels and we'd feel so good about ourselves for walking around a downtown square, not even a real true city block, uh, but to walk a mile in in these heels. And I'm getting like muscle spasms in my calves after 12 minutes. And uh, yeah, uh, plane power chiming in says, "What an entertaining Monday." Uh, James is asking for Sam to turn that into a gif. Uh, Sam's got this gleam in his eye right now. And uh, we'll see what happens there. I haven't made a gift for a while. Yeah, we got to add little, to the collection. It has yeah. been a little while, hasn't it? All yeah. right. Duly yeah. noted. Um, uh, people, yeah, I, 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 uh, Chris says there's a flirt alert right on uh, right now. Uh, Jillian says I need to guest appear on Drag Race. Um, uh, hey, I wouldn't put anything past us here on Real Talk. You never know what might come of a conversation like that. I feel like I feel like we just made a new friend. Oh, yeah. I, I think mean, it's safe to say on RuPaul's Drag Race, they'll do transformations where they'll bring on different guests and they'll yeah. get put into drag for the first time. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't want to go, I will be there. You will be there. I will. I have to. And there's many there's many local queens. Mm, I would call them yeah. local queens. They're just based out of where we there live. There you go. There you go. Right. They're all stars in their own right. But it in is their own minds. Yeah. But it is. No. And there, I mean, there's a bit. <laughs> It's you it's like be, a you real. Be, you got to be confident, though, Ryan. And like what what he what uh, you know Brock was saying there is like there's that certain element of personality that and you don't there's not a lot of shy queens. There's sort of this now whether it's uh, in character or whether that's just their personality in or out of drag. Um, when when like a team of queens shows up, it just changes every party. Can we all agree on that? <laughs> Parties get a lot less lame when the drag queens show up. Have you ever done drag queen bingo? It is so fun. Drag queen bingo? How does that work? Drag queens host a bingo night. Oh, I see. Okay. It is fun. Oh, yeah. We could do that for charity. Or we could just do not everything has to be for charity. We they do it, do it for charity. Fun, you know, the yeah. ones that I go to have been done. for charity. Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm sure that makes you feel very good. About okay. Our friends at Local Waste want to remind you that if you check them out online at localwaste.ca, you can request a quote or book a bin in Alberta, Saskatchewan. They've got the numbers there. And of course, you can contact them by way of the link as well. For more than a quarter century, Local Waste Services has been family owned operating with integrity as a core value. They have the word integrity framed and hanging on the wall in their head office. And that means that they're not going to try to grind you in a deal that only works for them. They take pride in working with their clients, their partners, to ensure that everybody's happy with that business relationship. You don't believe me? Give them a call and see for yourself. You can ask for Mikkel, Lauren, or Chris by name. Again, all the details at localwaste.ca. The following paid advertisement does not necessarily represent the views of Ryan Jesperson, Real Talk, or Relay Communications Group Incorporated. It's time for a fresh perspective. Edmonton deserves a leader who will work for you and with you. Someone who understands the strengths of our community to do things better and faster. Cheryl Watson has built her career on results, not promises. On October 18th, vote Watson for mayor and together, let's build a city that works. This ad is paid for by the Watson for Mayor campaign. 
Our friends at Kubi Energy want to remind you that if you're looking into net zero options, if you've set a sustainable energy goal for yourself, whether it's at your cabin, your cottage, your primary residence, your business, they've got solutions of all sizes and all sorts. They're doing work in BC and Alberta right now out of their offices in Edmonton and Kamloops. Kubi Energy provides solar energy solutions to power your life. They're Tesla certified. All of their installers are either ticketed or apprentices, which means you can trust the job that they're doing. Every Monday, our first show of the week, I should say, our friends at Kubi Energy help us get the week started off on the right foot. They, they help us reset our focus. Sometimes they restore our faith in humanity. It's a feature we call Positive Reflections. We absolutely loved this tweet from Tim Taylor Smith. I've been so excited to show this to you. He says, hey, Ryan, some happy news. After being diagnosed with Parkinson's 10 years ago and numerous broken legs, my wife was able to get back and row again. It's a sport she loves. Tim says, of course, these are baby steps, but they are steps forward. My wife helped create Canada's para rowing team. Look at this video. For those of you watching on YouTube, check this out. This is Tim's wife, 10 years after her Parkinson's diagnosis, back out on the water doing what she loves. That made my week, Tim, and I'm thrilled that you shared it with us. How about this one? A writing competition. This is from Michael, who took the time to chime in at talk at ryanjesperson.com. He says, my daughter has achieved an amazing thing, and I had to write into Real Talk about it. He says, early last month, she received a very special letter, a congratulations of sorts, confirming she made it to the final rounds of a Canadian short story writing contest. He says, with the circus, with the hellscape that is politics in Alberta these days, I thought we could all use some great news about our kids. They've gone through so much over the past few months. It's a ray of sunshine to see what this has done to my daughter's confidence, all the hard work she's put into her writing this summer. He says she chose to write a fantasy story themed around mental health, and she wrote it on a typewriter. He says, that's right, my daughter is old school. She uses it daily, and it's such a joy for me to hear that keyboard clacking away, that bell ringing when I get home from work. Mike, who signs off as the frontline defender, says, oh, and by the way, the publisher is compiling all the winner's stories and publishing as a book. As a dad, I could not be more proud. I hope this story lifts the real talk community spirit that even during a pandemic, our kids are still pursuing their passions. Mike, the frontline defender, we love it. And congratulations to your daughter. What an exciting opportunity. This from Danielle, who says, Real Talkers, I'm so thankful for the job I have. I'm thankful that it allows me to get out of the house to socially, uh, to safely socialize with people. Says, I've got two school-aged daughters and a son that was born last March. And when I, when I went on mat leave at the start of the pandemic, it was devastating to be stuck at home without a connection to other moms. I'm a social butterfly, and it was really hard on me. So when my mat leave was over, I was so excited to get back to a work routine. 
I teach the most amazing people on the planet in a little rural school in Murnham, Alberta. She says, we have the best kids. I broke down in tears in our first staff meeting trying to express how much I admire everybody around me. Nothing is ever deemed to be impossible. No school-wide project is ever too ambitious, no matter how much work it'll be. Yeah, it is hard work, but it's so rewarding, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be in Murnham, Alberta. That from Danielle. Danielle's email reminded me of that great advice, bloom where you're planted. I thought that was so beautiful. And this one in closing from Lisa. Lisa says, I've recently found myself grounded to my home while I recover from some health challenges. She says, which for a nature and landscape photographer, well, that's akin to torture. Well, autumn takes hold and the landscape has such beautiful explosions around us. She says, I decided I still needed to create. So I headed out to photograph autumn in my yard as best I could in my favorite way with my macro lens. She says, I hope that these images bring as much joy to you as they did to me. Says Lisa to all real talkers, have a wonderful week. Well, Lisa, you made our day. You've knocked our socks off. And thanks for sharing. If something happens in your world, something that puts a smile on your face, something that reminds you about perspective, something that encourages you in a way that, that really prompts you to take pause, we'd love to hear it. And so would our friends at Kubi Energy. You can submit your positive reflections anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com or hit us up on Twitter with the hashtag RealTalkRJ. Coming up on tomorrow's show, as promised, we'll have in-depth coverage, analysis of the results of the municipal elections happening today in our home province of Alberta. Get out and vote, real talkers. Plus, former hockey star Bernie Saunders will join us about his new autobiography, Shut Out, the game that did not love me black. Bernie Saunders coming up on Real Talk tomorrow. In the meantime, make it a great Monday, friends. We'll see you soon. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing Director, Josh Dunford. Account Coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise Operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's Editorial Board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis Settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. <laughs>